I have enjoyed this Q&A series that we've done this fall. It's given Amy and me a chance to preach a little differently for us to emphasize two texts in a given Sunday, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. It's given our choir a chance to learn some Hebrew and sing from the Old Testament and sing from the New Testament. One thing that I hate to hear though and I haven't heard it around this series, but I hate to hear people say, oh, the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. You know, the Old Testament God is wrathful and the New Testament God is love. Let me remind you, and as we just quoted the text from the psalmist in the Old Testament, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love. God is God. And there is grace in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. But if you spend enough time looking at the Old Testament, you're bound to come across a text like today's text that sounds pretty ominous. It's a text of judgment a text of the wrath of God, and we will have to look carefully at that and ask carefully how to understand that. And the truth is, when we look at today's New Testament text, we'll have to look deeply if we want to find the opposite, because you can also find wrath and judgment in the new. Let me read to you this text from the prophet Malachi as we begin. See, the day is coming, that day is burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah, Before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Hard words and easy for us to read of an Old Testament God of wrath. Let me remind you, lest I take any of Amy's answer here, that it was the prophet Amos who said, Woe unto you who look forward to the day of the Lord, for it will be to you as darkness, not as light. So anytime we hear these texts of judgment and think we are among the side who is doing the judging, who will enjoy that day of the Lord, we're reminded of that other word which is in the Old Testament. Those of you who think the day of judgment will be in your favor might ought to look out. Observant Jews have always set an extra place at the table 
for the Passover Seder meal. One extra empty plate, always an extra empty chair at the table. It's set there for Elijah, one of the greatest of Israel's prophets, who according to this prophecy of Malachi is supposed to return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great and terrible day. Pretty much says it all, don't you think? To hear many radio preachers and televangelists, that foreboding day is pretty much all we're about. And to hear the volume and the frequency with which they speak of that day, it's going to be great because, because it's going to be terrible. Oh, the joy of judgment. Just reading a text like Malachi's pronouncement almost makes you understand, almost makes you understand the fascination and obsession with judgment. In five short verses, we hear all of these threatening and fearful words, the day is coming. Let me invite you to add your own ominous soundtrack in your mind as we say those words, the day is coming. A day that is burning like an oven. A day that shall burn up the wicked. Of course, we're never in the wicked, right? A day that shall burn up the wicked who will be tread down by the righteous until they are ashes. Indeed, it will be a great and terrible day of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait. <laughs> Judgment. And our love of it is one of the most destructive elements of religion. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, Jainism, Confucianism, Taoism, Santeria, Yoruba, Rastafarianism, Pastafarianism. Take the religion of your pick, it's all there. A judgmental disposition is a tendency inherent to religion itself. In his book, When Religion Becomes Evil, Charles Kimball says we have to learn to read our text carefully to not read them as absolute text, our absolute truth, our absolute understanding. We have to learn to read carefully. Until we learn to read our text differently and until we Christians truly learn to interpret our scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ, our understanding will always be open to the taint of a narrow and unforgiving condemnation. We are right. You are wrong. We are the righteous. You are the wicked. The day of God's judgment will come to you. As I've already told you in this sermon series, if you want to find such theology within our sacred text, you will not have to look far. Passages such as this from Malachi have emboldened many zealots, but arrogant, many zealous, but arrogant adherents of their chosen religious traditions. But such a religion will not draw us near to God, 
and it will be even more destructive of our relationships with one another. But unfortunately, religion, neither ours nor theirs, has yet arrived at that level of fidelity or maturity. So the question today is this. When have you been judged? And by whom? And how has someone's righteous religious condemnation damaged your faith in God? your belief in your neighbor, your love of self? Or to put the question conversely, whom have you judged and why? For those of you who don't do words real well, Monty just preached the whole sermon in music. I would ask him to do it again, but I bet my next paycheck he can't because he probably made it up on the spot. <laughs> but that ominous sound of that question about judgment ended where I hope to end. It's no surprise that the message of Luke's text that I'm about to read 
isn't obvious on its face. This is most often the case with deep truth, and Jesus usually preached deep truth. Truth is layered, and we usually have to dig beyond the surface just to get to it. That's a nice way of saying that this text is very complex and complicated. Jesus was a controversial figure because he spoke difficult truths. And ironically, many of the things that he said, which led to his difficulties with the religious and the political establishment, many of the things that he said were actually misunderstandings. Today's text is going to be a perfect example of that. Jesus speaks against God's temple. And to speak against God's temple was a blasphemy to faithful Jews in a first century world. Such words of judgment were understood as a repudiation of a way of life, a cultural frame of reference, a comprehensive theology, a complete religious tradition. Jesus will say, not one stone will be left upon another. Nothing could have sounded or pronounced a sound of judgment worse than that for first century Jews. Though the Romans killed Jesus, they did so with the participation of the religious elite. And such words from Jesus led to the kind of fractured relationship that contributed to his death. The irony of this is what Jesus actually had to say was much harder than what they thought he said. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when, when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And there was a collective. <gasps> they asked him, teacher, when will this be and what will be the sign that it's about to take place? I do not like that question. The question about when will it be? What will be the sign of the end times? Jesus probably didn't like it much either. And he said, beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them, he said. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. There's so many people on street corners right now that I want to go read this to them. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues. And there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all of this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. 
So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. You've heard the ancient story. I can't imagine that Jesus was able to gather very many people around him. I've struggled mightily with this text this week. I think I say that every week, but this week it's like really true. Like if mine and Russ's marriage survives this week of working out these texts, I think we're good to go. (laughs) This has not come easily. I think I have finally realized why. I am so put off by apocalyptic readings. In general, I just don't do end times stuff. I think I had a full dose of that growing up more than enough to last a whole lifetime. So now I tend to shy away from any of this kind of talk, judgment and tribulation and all. I've told you before how I can so vividly, I mean, like I was in the moment, I can remember it that vividly, being about 10 years old and praying that if Jesus was going to come back during my lifetime, please just let me die first because I just could not bear the frogs and the locusts, and I knew that God understood that. I don't do creepy crawlies, and I just knew that the Lord would understand my prayer. That is, that is so real to me that I can touch it. That's how real it is. Then I can remember as a young teenager hoping that the end wouldn't come until I graduated from high school and that I could go ahead and even begin to picture not wanting the end to come until I finished college and while we were at it, God, could I please just get married and have a family? That's really all I wanted before the end came. The end had me in her grasp and I was afraid of it. I'm pretty sure this kind of scare tactic is not the best way to preach about God, and yet every summer during revival, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I answered the question about if I were to die that night in a car wreck on the way home, did I know where I would be going? I could answer that with an affirmative, yes, I was going to heaven. And the upside of the car accident would be avoiding the frogs and the locusts. So when I get to passages like this from Luke's Gospel today, I'd rather just skip over it and say, I've progressed in my theology and my understanding, and now let's move on. But I realize that my struggle this week has been how to talk about this text with you, who by and large don't have to undo years' worth of bad theology like I do. Some of you older folks grew up with what I'm talking about, a tribulation kind of movement, a scare tactic to stay out of hell more than go to heaven. 
and not so much talked about the here and now and how we live our lives right now. Some of you can relate to that. But I thought about our children and our young people who right now have no foggy idea what I'm talking about with frogs and locusts. I'm good with that. <laughs> and for some of you for whom this is really your first step into church life, you haven't gotten the dose of judgment and wrath and a vengeful God that's coming at you. And for that, I'm grateful. But it surely makes preaching this passage hard when I can't spend the whole time undoing something. My own children have no idea what it is like to fear God's judgment. But the people of Jesus' day did know. And when he started talking about the destruction of their beloved temple, this perked their ears. And in the passage for today, what the people heard was a judgment starting with the temple. And for them, it ended there. Nothing could be worse than the temple being destroyed. What they couldn't see, and what many street preachers even right this very minute still can't see, is that what Jesus actually intended in this presentation that he made was a judgment on judgment. At every point in his ministry, when someone invited Jesus to speak a word in support of religion as judgment, he turned the tables on them. The text we read in our prayer of confession is a case in point. Let us call fire down upon them, the disciples asked Jesus, but he rebuked the disciples. Jesus' own life was a living testimony to the unconventional wisdom that was diametrically opposed to a religious culture of sacrifice. That culture said that you could make an offering at the temple and have your sins forgiven. It was as simple as that. It was the way of the scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb, and that cultic expression had become the center of the religious life of first century Judaism. The temple was built on this theology. So Jesus is condemned because of his judgment on the temple. His actual condemnation is so much deeper than that. It is on religion and many lives lived in that religion that said, in effect, to sacrifice is better than to obey. The judgment that Jesus offered was on judgment. Jesus came preaching a different message. He actually never gives very much time at all discussing what and when of the end. He says to watch. He says to wait. He says to be faithful. In this text, though, he talks about tribulation. And many Christians interpret that as the end of time. And he says, be faithful. By your endurance, he says, not by your sacrifice in the temple, you will gain your souls. So if we are a church 
that doesn't spend our time on apocalyptic musings, if we aren't bent toward end times thinking or governed by a vengeful, wrathful, and judgmental God, then we're home free on this topic, right? Unfortunately, no. Just listen to us. Or better yet, listen to your own heart and all the things you think about others that you don't even dare say out loud. We may not be afraid of the judgment, but we should be terrified by our own judgmental selves. It's nowhere more obvious and hideous than in our political speech how we loathe them. How self-righteous we are in our positions, claiming superiority by dousing our own views in religious coverings. That's the obvious one. And we all do it. You know you do. Even if you don't say it out loud. But we do this in lesser ways, but just as damaging, or maybe even more damaging, in the way that we lump people into groups by the clothes that they wear, the color of their skin, their tattoos and their gauges, or the cars they drive, what side of the tracks they live on. Tell me if you don't do this. We create entire narratives in the grocery store, picking out bananas about the person picking out the apples. By looking at what they wear, by listening to their accent, by trying to figure out where they're from, by how they talk to their children, by what head covering they wear, we create entire narratives when we pump our gas and we look at the car next to us. We create whole stories about their unwillingness to work when we see them standing there with a sign. We don't know their story. And yet we've created an entire life for them based on just one observation. I may have grown up worshiping a judgmental God. But as a grown-up, all I can find are God's judgmental people, me included. Some folks love to read passages like the one today and focus on the end. Perhaps this is because the present is too hard to tackle. We'd rather think in terms of those grand wars and famines and earthquakes and plagues because those are out there beyond our reach. And if we were to be honest, we don't really think those things are about us anyway. But right now, within our own hearts and lives, we are being torn up, shaken and shattered and drowning by our own judgmental attitudes. Jesus told them, you do not have to prepare a defense ahead of time. I will give you the words and the wisdom 
and he has. His words and wisdom are most often about life and grace and truth and love. If the question was judgment, I guess the short answer is love. Always, always love. Period. The end. May it be so.